Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to another episode of the Remastered Podcast. This is your host, Sister Smahan Abdullahi. And today I am joined by a very special guest, a dear sister in the struggle, Sister Linda Sarsour. And we're going to be talking about some heavy hitting topics today. So stay tuned, uh, inshallah. But before we get started, Sister Linda, how is your day today? Alhamdulillah, I'm just grateful to be alive, Sister Ismaham. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. I think sometimes we don't slow down enough to ask ourselves how we are doing. Um, and so it's always good to make sure that, just as a reminder to folks, to always check in with your loved ones. Uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Sister Linda Sarsour, I highly doubt there are any listeners that are not familiar with our dear sister. Uh, but Sister Linda is an award-winning racial justice and civil rights activist. She's a seasoned community organizer, direct action strategist, and a mother of three. Ambitious, outspoken, and independent, she does not back down. Sister Linda shatters stereotypes of Muslim women while also treasuring her religious and ethnic heritage. She is a Palestinian Muslim American and a self-proclaimed pure New Yorker, born and raised in Brooklyn. She is the co-founder of the first Muslim online organizing platform, Empower Change, and co-founder of Until Freedom, an intersectional racial justice organization focused on direct action and power building in communities of color. on the Breonna Taylor police murder case in Louisville, Kentucky. Sister Linda was one of the national co-chairs of the largest single day protest in US history, the Women's March on Washington. She has been named amongst 500 of the most influential Muslims in the world. She was recognized as one of Fortune's 50 greatest leaders and featured as one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. Sister Linda was a 2020 Roddenberry Fellow and released her highly anticipated book, We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders, and Memoir of Love and Resistance. She's most recognized for her transformative intersectional organizing work and movement building. She is building and organizing for us and our communities and is at the front lines, at the front lines always. Thank you, Sister Linda, for the amazing work that you do. And we hope uh, and pray that Allah continues to protect you, guide you, and bless you always. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So let's kind of dive into what's going on um, in the world today. I know that's a very kind of um, a general way to start this off but we are witnessing numerous injustices across the world and here in our own backyards as well. The communities of color have been organizing, have been in the front lines of demanding change and demanding a difference in the world today. And whether it's here in you know, the backyard of our nation, um, in our cities, especially our inner cities, to what's happening globally around the world, especially right now in Palestine and Palestine, and our Ugyar brothers and sisters, our Ugyar siblings, who are also in concentration camps, the world is, 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 is hurting. I'm reminded of a quote from Warsan Shire, one um, or poem that she wrote, where she was looking at the globe and said, um, where does it hurt? And the globe said, everywhere. Mm. And that has, is, it's really powerful um, because it kind of brings into uh, our focus of just not how every time there's an injustice in one place or there's communities that are hurting is connected to communities that are hurting elsewhere in the world. So can you kind of just set the, uh, set the um, uh, um, 
tone for us in terms of really thinking about how do we approach the constant pain, the constant injustice that we see in the world, the constant kind of rhetoric that we've seen in media outlets that are ignoring uh, the stories of communities of color uh, across the board. What's going on today? And how do we understand what's going on today in the context of really bringing about change? I really appreciate um, that, Ismahan, and I thank Mass and the Remastered Podcast for giving me this platform, so I'm honored to be here. Um, the world is hurting, and it's hurting everywhere, um, and for different communities, it hurts in different ways, um, but this doesn't mean that one community's pain is less than or more than um, any other communities. As a Palestinian-American, um, of course, I've been watching the pain of my own people. I'm watching the forced displacement of Palestinians in Jerusalem, you know, watching the attacks on Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third holiest site for Muslims, watching the absolute massacre and slaughter of Palestinians um, in Gaza. And we're talking about over 70 children who literally have been murdered just within the last maybe eight days. Um, and as you said, there's hurting everywhere. As you know, you know, my main work that I do is in the criminal justice and anti-police brutality space and criminal justice reform. And um, just in the last few weeks, I've been to the funerals of Micaiah Bryant in Columbus, Ohio. I was at the funeral of Demetrius, Dante Demetrius Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minneapolis. I was at the announcement for the verdict for George Floyd. And so, so getting to see the pain that people in the United States of America, particularly Black people, are experiencing at the hands of police and watching what was happening and what is happening in Palestine for me has a similar pain. Um, you know, when you watch the ways in which the Israeli military forces uh, treat Palestinians, there's a lot of things that you see that are very similar to the ways in which police um, interact with communities of color here in the United States. We've watched the neck, the knee on the neck, which is a procedure that we've seen also the Israeli um, offensive forces use against Palestinians. We have seen the militarization of policing in communities like Baltimore, Ferguson, in Louisville, Kentucky, um, even in places like New York. Uh, similarly to the way that cities and small towns are militarized by the Israeli defense forces, Israeli offensive forces, as people are calling them now, um, in, in what is what has been a 73-year occupation. Um, what's important to know about Palestine and what's happening in Palestine is that this is not something that just started two weeks ago. Um, and I think a lot of the world had, has woken up to social media and not being able to deny what your eyes see the videos of people being displaced and forced out of their homes. You cannot deny your eyes when during the holy month of Ramadan, their place of worship. Um, but this is a long-standing fight um, that has happened and it's not a conflict, um, it's not a clash. And that to your point about the media, uh, unfortunately, um, US-based mainstream media gets to decide whose narrative are they going to center? Um, and unfortunately this time around, or fortunately, depending on who's uh, making this claim, uh, they have been forced to center Palestinian voices, um, maybe not as much as we want them to, but in a way that they've never done before. Uh, and that requires um, you know, us being able to tell our stories in a way that is um, giving us the space to do that. And unfortunately, we've never had that in mainstream media. Uh, unfortunately, pro-Israel voices have always dominated the airwaves um, and their propaganda has dominated uh, mainstream media and for a very long time. And this time around, I think what I'm being hopeful about, because I always want, you got to find light in darkness, is that we're finally intercepting, we're finally kind of cutting through 
that propaganda in a way that has allowed our fellow Americans, allies, um, to really come up, come out loud and, and proud in support of Palestinian freedom and liberation. Uh, there have been many allies, as you know, for a long time, but now we've seen a almost like a wave, like it just came out like a crashing wave of people saying, no, this is not right. And, and, and lastly, what I'll say is the connection. You know, when we, when, when we say, you know, there's all these injustices that are happening around the world, I think one way for us to focus is to think about which injustice do we have an actual hand in? Which injustice are we complicit in? Which is the injustice that we have power to change? And the Palestinian uh, liberation movement or that area around justice for Palestinians is a place where we do have power because the United States governor is, uh, government is the largest finan financier of the Israeli military occupation of the Palestinian people. Um, we have power in our uh, economic connections to the state of Israel. And so, so the American public um, has an opportunity to call their members of Congress and say, hey, I don't want my taxpayer dollars going to the occupation of Palestinians. You know, there is a piece of legislation by Congresswoman Betty McCullum from the great state of Minnesota that says, hey, we're giving military aid to Israel and we need to condition it. They should not be using our money to annex more land and steal more land. They shouldn't use our money to detain Palestinian children or to forcibly displace people. That seems like a reasonable piece of legislation that our fellow Americans should call their members of Congress and say, hey, I need you to support this legislation. Sounds right to me. And so that's an immediate connection and immediate action that we could take um, in this moment around the issue of what's happening uh, in Palestine. Absolutely. Jazakallah khairan for sharing that. There has been a shift in conversation. Um, and in, sometimes in order for policy to change that conversational shift has to, has to um, come because the dominant narrative has always been the moment you speak up for Palestine, the mo moment you bring and shed light onto what's happening with the um, occupation in Israel as a settled colonial state, you know, folks become nervous, folks become um, targeted, so to speak. I remember just in college when we we're organizing around justice in Palestine, putting on Justice in Palestine Week um, and raising awareness, just the backlash that continues to happen uh, till today. So what's different now? Why is this response, um, people are able to kind of see the connection, like, you know, we are uh, organizing against white supremacy here in our soil, right? We recognize that our country, the United States was built on stolen land and on the backs of stolen people. So by default, there is this uh, amazing kind of like internal and instinctive understanding of um, connecting with the Palestinian struggle for liberation. Uh, but I think you've seen it yourself, we've seen it, that shift is happening. Um, and so what can we do to keep the momentum going to continue to raise awareness uh, and make sure that we're not backing down despite the political backlash? Uh, that folks do receive and sometimes very, you know, scary, frightening, threatening. I know your life has been threatened because you're so outspoken and you don't back down and you're unapologetic. May Allah protect you always. Uh, and a lot of, you know, allies coming into the space are recognizing, hold on, you know, I want to stand in solidarity, but how do I find that courage to speak up when the pressure that you do receive for, uh, for organizing for Palestine is an actual real you know, um, um, loud noise, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, the, the, the bottom line is Ismahan, they can silence a few of us, but they can't silence millions of us. And that is the importance of solidarity, which is why my work has focused in the last two decades on solidarity. It's this idea that when I speak up, knowing that there are others willing to stand with me, we, we give each other cover, we give each other support in a way that in the communities that we're trying to defend. And that's why solidarity is important. It's not enough for Palestinians to fight for Palestinians. It's not enough for Black people to fight for Black people. It's not enough for Asian people to fight for Asian people. We need to build these barriers, these beautiful uh, you know, encasements of solidarity to protect one another. And I commend the Palestinian Americans and the pro-Palestinian solidarity movement and the many allies we've had over the many years who have experienced the backlash. But they kept going, Ismahan. They stayed courageous. They were steadfast. They continued to organize on college campuses. They continued to build those relationships. They continued to speak up. And I, they knew it was going to be worth it. And all the backlash that many Palestinian activists and pro-Palestinian activists have received over the years has now, they've been vindicated. Um, you know, you sometimes have to see through the darkness. You have to see through the struggle, through the risk taking. And we also have to look at history. You know, this idea for solidarity with Palestinians is nothing new. Um, it goes back many, many decades in the United States of America. It goes back to Malcolm X and Kwame Ture, AKA Stokely Carmichael. It goes back to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, who wrote a letter in 1967 in solidarity with the Palestinian and Arab people. It goes back to Angela Davis, who's still here with us today, and Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, and really profound leaders across the world. And I always remind people, you know, at one point, the United States government had designated ANC and Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. And then 40 years later, we are, you know, revering Nelson Mandela um, as a hero. Uh, and so that's the kind of, that's what, that's America taught us that all the time. We called, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, the, the most dangerous black man in America. And then now we have monuments of him and we have a day off in January. So we just got to stay the course. And I think what's different now is that you cannot deny social media. There's no way that you can say, hey, I think the Palestinian people are exaggerating. It can't be that bad. You know, I heard that the Palestinian people were this way and that way, which is why they can't govern themselves. And then all of a sudden, people are using their smartphones, which are a very important creation, unfortunately, invention where they're showing you how is it possible that I'm living in a house and that I can come back to my house and find other people living in it. It doesn't make any sense. There's no logical way to justify it. And watching what's happening in Gaza. Gaza is an open air prison. Over 90% of the people of Gaza do not have direct access to clean water. And if anyone who cares about what's happening in Flint and what's happening in Newark and in other parts of the country where even our own fellow Americans don't have access to clean water, we need to stand with the Palestinian people. If you care about climate justice, um, it's a climate justice uh, disaster in Gaza, just in the ways in which the Israeli government has a siege on, on, on Gaza and the, and the social injustice that's happening around access to resources um, and the ways in which the, the people of Gaza even have uh, you know, a, a way to get around some of the climate um, uh, issues that are happening there. You know, one of the things that a lot of people don't know is, man, is people say, wait a minute, what we heard in the news was at one point, didn't uh, Israel withdraw from Gaza? So it, Gaza is not under occupation in the same way that the West Bank is under occupation. And yes, that part of that is true, that there was a moment, um, you know, about 13 years ago where the Israeli military um, and the Israeli government dismantled the settlements that were within Gaza. 
and they removed those settlements and they removed the military from being inside of Gaza. But the part of the story they don't tell you is that the state of Israel still has control over the borders. They have control over the airspace. They have control over the, the sea. Um, so the Palestinian people are literally in just a prison. So they may not have Israeli soldiers walking around between the streets and between the houses, but they do in fact live in an open air prison. There's, it's, you, there's rarely any going out and there's rarely any going in. Um, and so, so again, the, the, the people of Palestine Every major credible human rights organization from Human Rights Watch to Amnesty International um, has literally, and, and even a human rights organization within Israel, like a group like Bet Salem has said, listen, this is apartheid. These, there are potential war crimes that have happened here. Of course, we believe that there definitely was war crimes, but let's just say, according to these human rights organizations, based on their fact finding, that they, they, they believe that there were war crimes. And then you know that the uh, the International Criminal Court finally said, we have jurisdiction. We believe that there may have been some war crimes and we're going to investigate. The Palestinian leadership, and I say leadership in quotes, um, needs permission from the Israeli government in order to travel to the International Criminal Court. Like what people do you know around the world that need permission from their occupier, permission from their colonizer to go defend the human rights of their people in the, at the International Criminal Court. It just doesn't, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't, it wouldn't, it's not something we would accept for any other people, but for some reason it's taken this long that it has been acceptable. Absolutely. And we're complicit in that with our tax paying dollars. I mean, just the annual, um, you know, just thinking about the annual amount of money, the military aid and military fund that's given to Israel, $3.8 billion. So the average taxpayer is giving about $25 and 25 cents. Um, and oftentimes I'm thinking about, you know, just Flint, Michigan still doesn't have water, right? We're looking at a lot of our, um, just what's happening in our soil today and how much that money could be benefiting our folks. Um, if you're thinking about, you know, just from an education perspective, being able to cancel student debt, uh, being able to provide um, the infrastructure needed for our inner cities, uh, so on and so forth. So I think sometimes people forget that our own taxpaying dollars is going to is going into supporting the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Uh, subhanallah. I know this kind of started with, um, you know, this has been going on for a very long time, but we've seen the social media kind of uh, picking up steam, especially, especially around uh, saving Sheikh Jarrah. For folks who don't understand, um, you know, from the context of just uh, Palestinians being displaced, having been, being, uh, having been displaced for so many years, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, just that current energy today and how it's important for us to tell our stories, to share our stories, to be able to kind of connect and build that intersection with others um, and build those relationships with folks outside of our own um, causes that we're focusing on and recognize how this constant like exchange of stories and being able to uh, shed awareness uh, is, is actually what's help, helping to shift that conversation. Why are our stories important? Because people Ismahan, are moved by stories. You know, people are not moved by talking points. They're not moved by, you know, the statistics. People are not moved by, you know, this kind of academic talk. They're moved by stories. And some of the ways that I've been able to build solidarity within the work that I do is I just, you know, people ask me, say, hey, where are you from? 
you know, what's your story? What brings you to these movements? Um, and being able to share as a daughter of Palestinian immigrants, you know, the great granddaughter of Palestinians and talking about the experiences that my family have had, um, it really opens the eyes of folks around you. People look at you and say, now I know why you're here. I know why you have that kind of blood of resistance. You know, it makes sense for people to see us in social justice and racial justice spaces because that is really the spirit of the Palestinian people. It's the spirit of the Somali people when people understand why Somalis are part of the larger immigrant rights and racial justice movements um, in America. Uh, it, it, we, we, we have a story to tell that is important. It's compelling. And that's what the Palestinian people are doing. The Palestinian people in Palestine have tried many ways to tell their stories, but also to show solidarity, even under the distress that they are in. You know, I never will never forget in Ferguson, you know, watching Palestinian kids in Gaza who almost rarely have good internet access follow what was happening with Mike Brown and started to share. Uh, advice for the young black kids in Ferguson to protect themselves from tear gas, you know, and, and literally were giving specific instructions. And I was in Ferguson and I watched those black young people do exactly what those Palestinian kids told them, wash their eyes out with milk. They took two liter bottles, turned them over, made a cutout and used it as a mask. I mean, using it to protect their faces and shield their eyes. Like it was so remarkable to see that sense of solidarity. These black young people didn't know those kids in Palestine, but there was this natural connection, this natural, uh, you know, solidarity that helped to protect the kids of Ferguson because the Palestinian kids been there, done that. And so it's, it's for me, solidarity is our survival. That's really all we got. Um, and I always say this in the movement, we're all we got. Um, we have to learn how to protect one another. And, you know, you know, this is Mahan, and a lot of the movements we're a part of, there's a chant that's often used. Um, it's by Asada Shakur. And people say, we must love and protect one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. These chants that we do, it's not just words. They mean something to me. We have to love and protect one another. Uh, you know, we have to understand that our chains are interlinked. And that when you break one, one group's chains or one person's chains, it doesn't mean that my chains are broken or it's the hands chains are broken. We have to break all the chains and our movements are intertwined and we have to understand that our liberation is bound up with one another. And I believe that also about the Jewish people, that our liberation is bound up with theirs. And that is why when people ask us, for example, as Palestinians, do we believe in a two state solution? It's a talking point. There is no such thing as a two state solution. It doesn't exist. It's illogical. It is is logistically impossible. There's no way I don't understand how you make a two-state solution where there's little banta stands, like little pockets of land, like literally all over the, 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 the entire kind of historic Palestine. It just doesn't logically make sense. And what we believe is in a one-state solution. We believe in a state where we can all coexist with one another, one democratic state where a constitution applies to all. And what's interesting about that you know, you're, you want to destroy the Jewish state, but what Palestinians will tell you, particularly those born before 1948, is we already coexisted before. Before the state of Israel, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, we lived in the land together. We farmed together. We went to the market and sold our, our, our you know, whatever our crops were together. Uh, it was it was it was something that 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 just was. Um, and so the Palestinian people understand coexistence. We know how to coexist. And that is why we believe that it is possible for us. And we believe that you cannot create a, one state for the safety and security of one people at the expense of another people. That is not how safety works. It's not how security works. All of us have to be safe. All of us have to be free. And that's why many of us do support a one state solution. I think we have the potential. And I also believe in the potential of the people. 
the governments don't want this. You know, leaders, leaders don't want this. But I guarantee you that if you went to people and said, what do you want? People will say to you whether they whether you go talk to people within the green line or you go to the West Bank, people will say, yeah, we just want to live in peace. We just want to have access. We just want to work. We just want to go to school. We want to travel. We want our kids to be safe. And that's what I believe every family wants. Everyone deserves to live um, in peace. And I think sometimes people misunderstand what peace means. Peace this doesn't mean, you know, you just ignore everything that's happening and, you know, just kind of like just that calm. Uh, but peace without justice is not peace. And that's what our Palestinian siblings are um, organizing and, and, and fighting for. I kind of want to pivot to your work with Until Freedom um, and really talking about, because when we talk about uh, struggles for liberation, whether it's our Palestinian siblings or bringing awareness to the uh, Uyghurs that are in concentration camps um, in China and are seeing the erasure of their culture, their faith, you know, their families, their communities, the horror stories that have been kind of coming from there. People don't realize it's again connected back where, you know, and, and dealing with global white supremacy and global fascism across the board um, and just Islamophobia that has uh, uh, really impacted uh, communities, um, you know, outside of the United States and here in the United States as well. Can we talk a little bit about Until Freedom and the work that you do? Uh, because it's critical. Media does not often really center the stories of our black siblings. And unless something is trending, unless something becomes a hashtag, we forget to lift up those very stories. Um, and on top of that, really take action. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that work and bringing awareness to this, especially since as, as a black Muslim Somali refugee woman, people sometimes don't realize in the black community, you never get the opportunity to heal from trauma because mm -hmm. trauma is ongoing. Because as you're protesting, as you're organizing and working on one specific issue, another one comes up, another one comes up. This is systemic and it's painful, it's hurtful, it's tiring, you know, uh, but we keep doing the work because one, we're standing on the shoulders of giants who came before us um, and building for uh, the future. When my little sister asked, you know, especially during the Trump administration, what's going to happen to us, both as Muslim and also because of uh, the color of our skin, it hurt me as a sister, even though I've been organizing in this space uh, for a very long time. So can you talk a little bit more about that work? Absolutely. You know, as you know, Ismahan, I was part of the Women's March on Washington and part of the Women's March organization for about three years. And while that was very important work and I learned so much about mass mobilization and had a lot of resources to be able to do the type of work that I was able to do at the Women's March, there was always something missing for me and Tamika in particular. Um, we wanted to go back to our roots. We wanted to go back to the work that we came from. We came from the anti-police brutality movement. We came from the immigrant rights movement. We came from criminal justice reform and working around black liberation. And that was something that I wanted to go back to. I missed being in spaces with predominantly people of color, predominantly black spaces. And the Women's March, as you know, was a very heavily white space. And it was a lot of emotional kind of energy that had to be put in educating white women. And I had no problem doing that because there were some white women who came out of the Women's March that are now some of the best allies that we have. They learned a lot. They were exposed to things that they were never exposed to before. But it was just a lot. Um, and as you know, as a Palestinian American, I received a lot of backlash in my participation in the Women's March because I was bringing things to the table that a lot of white women who are progressive on every other issue except for Palestine wanted to block from being spoken about. And I fought back and 
had a lot of great allies. I was able to ensure that the larger women's agenda that we proposed in 2019 um, had uh, the, the, you know, uh, that the Women's March is committed to standing against anti-BDS legislation, which was very important to me as a member of a protest movement. Um, but eventually Tamika and I um, kind of moved on um, and we went back to our roots and we started a group called Until Freedom. And Until Freedom have a lot of skills that we've built across the last almost two and a half decades. I mean, Tamika has been doing this for about 25 years. I've been doing this for about 20 years now. And, you know, we've learned how to work the media. We were great media advocates. We know how to get stories into the media. We also know how to do social media. We have a lot of, we have big followings. We also have a lot of relationships, relationships in hip hop, relationships in entertainment, relationships in uh, amongst athletes and others um, and became kind of a hub for people who wanna speak about issues but don't have the right terminology for us to kind of coach them in there. Um, we also have um, just, as you said, you know, we're just very unapologetic and very fearless. And we also um, felt this past year in particular, um, we had found out about the murder of Breonna Taylor in May, but Breonna was murdered in March of 2020. And so the fact that for almost two months, no one knew that a black woman, an EMT worker, a frontline worker during a global pandemic was murdered at the hands of the Louisville Metro Police Department was something that outraged us. And we knew it wasn't enough for us to work on that case and just put it on the internet you know, from New York. We actually moved to Louisville, Kentucky for about four and a half months. And we left during a global pandemic. We rented a house out in Louisville, Kentucky. And we organized every day. We were in the street every day. We organized neighbors. We organized um, uh, nonprofit leaders. We organized, uh, we brought other activists from outside of the state. We, we trained over 250 young people in the Louisville, Kentucky area, giving them skills so that we're not just there to help you, but we want you to help yourself as we move um, out of the space. And it's been, it was one of the most transformative experiences of my life. And that's what we do. You know, we've been working on the case of a woman in Texas named Pamela Turner. Lots of people don't know Pamela Turner. Pamela Turner is a woman that was murdered execution style by a police officer who lived in the same apartment complex. And she actually tried to lie and say that she was pregnant so that he wouldn't make her lay on the ground because she knew once she got on the ground, she's never going to get it back up. And you know what? She was right. And she was murdered in a horrific video, one of the most egregious murders we've ever seen. And guess what? never got the same media attention. And so our work at Until Freedom is that no one is going to be forgotten. And we may not get you justice, but we're gonna to work to get you at least some accountability. And so we're very close as you know, to the George Floyd family. And that momentum around George Floyd is something that Breonna Taylor deserves. It's something Pamela Turner deserves. And Tamika's philosophy is that as outraged as we are at the murder of black men, we need the same outrage for black women. And so that's what we hope to contribute to this larger conversation around police accountability. And we also believe in work in the streets, but work in the suites. Um, so we are not just a protest, but we believe in legislative changes. We believe in um, you know, electoral power and trying to take and shift the anger on the ground into something that is transformative. And so we, during this last election, we were the co-organizers of the state of emergency tour in six states where we went and organized what we believe are people who are never organized. I mean, people, the Democratic Party does not go and waste resources on what they call low propensity voters. That's the voters we wanna to talk to. We go to the hood of the hood 
um, is what Tamika says, because we want to make sure that everybody feels seen, that they're heard, and that we encourage them to use their power and their voice to go to the polls. So that's the work that we do. We're focused on racial justice. We believe, believe in Black and Brown solidarity. Um, of course, we do have some white allies who support our work, but our work is people of color led. And that is what is important to us. You know, For our white allies, we want you at the table. We want you to support us. We want you in the streets with us. And we want you to follow people of color leadership because that is what's going to get us free. Until freedom indeed, inshallah. Alhamdulillah, Allah accept. So that's, how do you keep grounded? Especially as an, an seasoned organizer. Um, and again, the, this dealing with adversity, uh, dealing with challenges, because I think sometimes folks think being an organizer is a walk in the park, uh, but it's not, <laughs> you know? And it requires um, being sometimes, you know, trying to, build power as a community, especially when the doors of power are being shut in your face all the time, you're right. So how do you keep going? What stays, what helps you stay grounded? You know, I always, every once in a while, I stop and think and I say, Alhamdulillah, that I'm a Muslim. Like, you know, I didn't choose to be a Muslim, meaning that I was born a Muslim. I was born in a Muslim family. Um, and I grew up in a family that wasn't that religious. Um, and only until I got a little older, I really got connected to my spiritual faith. I mean, I went to like Islamic school on the weekends. And of course, you know, we fasted in Ramadan, but I wasn't part of a very religious family. Um, but as I grew older, you know, being in, you know, going to university and meeting other Muslims. And of course, as I got into the movement and organized um, in the Muslim community, and of course, you know, was around a lot of mass organizers in places like Brooklyn and really got to connect to places that believed in organizing and activism, but also had the faith aspect was something that was so welcomed for me. It was something that really kind of clicked everything together. You know, a lot of times, darkness and you know this is Mahan. I've seen a lot of bad things um my family has experienced a lot of bad things but you know what Allah has come for me so many times and I tell people like we don't see Allah we, we have never seen Allah but Allah is there um and so and I will tell you this from personal experience there were moments where I was like I'm not going to make it through this and something happened you know Allah opened a new door for me Allah brought me a new ally Allah offered me something to remind me like I'm still here you got this get up, believe, you know, do what you need to do. And, and, and every time, and, and I've been blessed over and over again, um, because Allah does not leave us. And oftentimes I say to myself, you know, my mom has said this to me, he said, look, Allah tests those that he loves. And I say, alhamdulillah, Allah loves me a lot because I've been tested many, many, many times in many different ways. Um, and so spiritually, this has kept me grounded. And I always say to people, you know, people say, oh, Sister Linda, you're so fearless. You know, you'll just say anything, you'll do anything, you'll pick up your suitcase and you'll go anywhere. You know, you don't, you know, ask too many questions. You know, you just, there's something fearless about you. And I say, well, it's not that I'm fearless. I'm actually fearful, but only of Allah. And that's the thing. When you're not afraid of men and women and you're not afraid of people in power and you're not afraid of, you know, of critiques from people and all you fear is Allah, guess what? You become very fearless. There's, what am I afraid of? There's nothing for me. There's no obstacle out here. And I always tell people, you know, one thing that we believe as Muslims is that Allah has written for us when we're going to die. It's written for me somewhere. I don't know where it is and I don't know when it is, but I just know that if the day comes that Allah wants to take me, that's the day that I'm going. And I, I would rather go in, you know, worship. I'd rather go in being on the street fighting for Allah's creation. I would rather be somewhere where that my last deed was doing something good and something to please Allah. And so that's why, like, I don't have any fear. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. It's, you know, sometimes it mentally 
uh, hurts you only because you worry about other people. Like I'm not afraid for myself, but I do get scared for my family because I don't believe that they deserve the ramifications of the decisions that I've made of how I want to be in this world and what I want to do. But for myself, you know, if I wasn't Muslim, I'd, I don't know how I would be able to kind of go through the days and the weeks and the many months that I've experienced um, some very dark moments. MashaAllah, love bless you always. Um, well, I know we're coming towards the end, so I'll end with this. What responsibility do, do we have, especially to our Muslim activists and those who um, sometimes still have not connected spirituality with activism? Um, how do we become the most authentic version of ourselves? And how do we remain un unapologetic, especially in the face of Islamophobia, especially in the face of challenges that we have? You know, how do we keep the course? The thing that I'll say, Smahan, is that none of us are perfect. And so I always tell this to young activists, and I've been in a lot of mass space, and I say, look, I'm not you're necessarily the, the, the activist that you want to be like all the time because I'm a flawed human being. And sometimes I'm going to make mistakes. Take from me what is good. And there are going to be times where I'm going to fall off the tracks. And I think oftentimes in the Muslim community, we revere people, we revere scholars, we revere activists. And I don't encourage that because we're at some point along the way, we're all going to disappoint each other somehow. And it's going to be sometimes not with bad intention, but sometimes we might say something or we might do something that might disappoint our fellow sisters and brothers. And I want to make sure people are realistic. And so when you see activists and scholars in our community doing things that you agree with and things that are empowering to you, let's go with that. Um, and also to understand that we're all going to make mistakes along the way. And we have to stay the course because I always say to people, somebody somewhere is counting on you. You know, it's, it's really that simple. Somebody's counting on us. Our moms are counting on us. Refugees in our community are counting us on us. Our black sisters and brothers within our community and of course outside of our community are also counting on us. Um, and we all, as sometimes I think to myself, wow, I said, mashallah, like Allah has given me so much things. Like Allah blessed me in so many ways, blessed me with health, um, blessed me with a lot of energy and a lot of commitment. Um, I could wake up, I could work from the morning to the night. Like I can be on 24 hours and I'm not saying that's healthy, but I have to be able to use the blessings Allah has given me. You know, when oftentimes we see so much people less fortunate than us around the world, even in our own backyard, and being able to say, wow, alhamdulillah, Allah has given me so much. Let me give back to Allah. How do you give back to Allah? By protecting his creation, by lifting his creation, by helping someone else in need in your community. And that's what kind of keeps me going, um, understanding that every day I want to give back. I want to give something that has been given to me. And the thing that's so remarkable, Ismahan, is that our faith, and our, and our God, and of course, the folks who may be listening who are not Muslim, Allah just means God um, in Arabic, that when you give and you think you're giving, you want to give and you don't want anything in return. I just want to give. But Allah always gives you back more than you gave. Like every time I'm donating to an organization or I'm helping a family in my community or I'm helping an organization organize something and I'm doing it just so excited about it and I just want to do it. But still, Allah somehow finds a way to give me something that I had desired. Jazakallah khairan. It's our honor. Jazakallah khairan for taking the time out. Um, and do follow Sister Linda. She does have action items that she does post sometimes. So don't just follow. Make sure that you're supporting our sister as well. Alhamdulillah. May Allah bless you for your time, Sister Linda. Um, and really protect you and guide you. This is a dua that I always make for um, those of ours. 
ours from our community and others who are on the front lines because this work is not easy um, at all. So may Allah protect you always. And again, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this time um, on the podcast. And for folks who are tuning in, thank you for listening. This is your host, Ismahan Abdullahi with the Remastered Podcast signing off. Until next time. Assalamu alaikum.